Okay, right. Thank you, Hadil. Let's, uh, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to the book of Acts, we're in um, halfway through Acts chapter 6 today, and then we're going to read um, not the whole passage, but we're going to look at the end of Acts 6 and then all the way through Acts chapter 7. And what's been happening in this story, if you've been tracking with us as we've been going through the book of Acts, is that this, there's this pressure that's been building uh, in the city of Jerusalem as this new community has formed after Jesus' resurrection, after his ascension to heaven, after he promised that the Holy Spirit would come. The, the church in Jerusalem has been forming and growing, and as they've been doing that, they've been facing lots of Resistance. They've been facing these religious authorities who are not happy what's going on and are pushing back at them. And what we're going to hear in this story is the um, at least one of the initial kind of climaxes of this story, where Stephen, who's one of the leaders in the early church, is arrested and he ends up being stoned to death. It's a very sad story of what happens to him but in the middle between his arrest and then his martyrdom he speaks this message at what appears to be some kind of trial and we're going to look at what he has to say to us in this story so we're going to read um some verses from the end of Acts 6 and then we're going to jump ahead to Acts 7 so I'm going to read from verse um, 8 of Acts chapter 6 it says this and Stephen full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen as it was called and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Sicily and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place will change the customs that Moses, Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And then Stephen gives his response, and we're going to jump forward to verse 48 of Acts 7, which is the, the end of Stephen's message, where he says, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? He's kind of summing up his message. He's been going through the history of the people of Israel and how again and again they've rejected God's messengers. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. He's talking about Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for this uh, story this morning. In many ways, a, a tragic story of the brutal murder of a young man who was just trying to follow you. And we know we live in a world today where we, in our city, don't have to face that kind of persecution, but we just want to pray for the many brothers and sisters of ours around the world, even today, who do face uh, severe persecution, perhaps even martyrdom for what they believe. We pray for their peace today. And we pray for us, that you would help us hear what you have to say to us, that you would provoke and stir our hearts to follow you, to follow the real Jesus, no matter what the cost, no matter what that means for our lives. We pray that you would just reveal more of yourself to us this morning as we look at your word. Would you speak and guide us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been meeting here as a church in the Vonalkirk for uh, five and a half years now. And before we met here, we used to meet in another venue in the city called the Mirror Center, which was, uh, there are a few people here that used to, join us when we're at the Mirror Centre. And the Mirror Centre was, a, it's over the east side of the city centre, and it's kind of a community centre dance studio. And all the rooms have mirrors around the walls, um, which is great, because when you first start a church, you don't have many people in it, you just open up the curtains, and it's like revival. Where did all these people come from? <laughs> but so one thing that we had to encounter actually the first job our setup team had to do when they arrived on a Sunday morning is that there was a there was a Buddha uh, about this high on wheels and uh, we'd have to wheel the false idol literally out of the room remove the the Buddha from from the hall where we were meeting every Sunday morning and uh, they weren't the owners of this place this venue the mirror center they weren't Buddhists there, but they had a Buddha is, you may have seen it in many Dutch homes uh, here in the Netherlands and here particularly in, in Amsterdam. You'll see they might have a little one on their windowsill, one by the entranceway as you walk in, to bring some kind of positive energy into their, into their space. It's quite a typical thing for people to have. And in many ways, it, it represents how even in a very a famously secular, as in a city without God, 
secular city we live in, that there's a, there's a search in people's hearts for some kind of higher power, for something beyond them, something that gives them some kind of transcendent experience. Even as I was coming in here this morning, the notice board by the front door has a, a picture of a, a poster for an event that's coming up here uh, at the summer solstice in a few weeks' time, which is called, let me see if I can find that. I should have put it up on the screen, but here we go. The Summer Solstice Sound Bath. Join us on Wednesday, June 22nd, for a special sound bath with gongs, singing bowls, voice, flute, and other instruments as we celebrate and resonate with the energies of maximum light in the timeless dance of earth and sun, which sounds rather unusual. But again, indicates that there are many people in our city who are searching for something, some kind of mystical experience, some kind of sensation, something beyond themselves, whether it's a kind of a, some kind of energy, some kind of inner peace, or maybe people just believe in, in fate, destiny, some kind of purpose, some kind of something that's just out of their control, that's higher beyond them somehow. You'd hear of, of how actors uh, will never like to talk about Mac Macbeth, the Shakespeare play. They'll call it the Scottish play. They won't call it by Macbeth because they feel they'll call down some kind of curse upon themselves. Or there's lots of doctors and policemen who they'll never talk about their work being quiet because if you talk about it being quiet, you kind of bring down some kind of curse and then suddenly that's when things get get busy, just go on Google, don't do it now, but, and search about doctors or policemen and quiet. And this whole belief system that they've built around not saying that word, because if you do, that will curse your day, it will become unquiet. Now, you might be feeling some kind of objection in your heart to all these ideas of some kind of higher power, particularly if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. Because you might think, well, surely we do live in a in a secular age, we don't believe in any of that nonsense anymore. The philosopher Charles Taylor talked about how we used to live in, in an enchanted age where we believed in fairies and witches and gods and religion, whereas now we are in a disenchanted age that we don't have any of that anymore. That once there was a, an open heaven where we had access to all these crazy mystical ideas, but now there's a, a closed heaven in our society. We don't believe in that sort of stuff anymore. There was a survey that came out here in the Netherlands just a few months ago, which the, the headline of it, it was that our country was no longer a religious country because the majority of people in our nation would now describe themselves as, as atheist or agnostic, that they don't believe in any kind of religious God. But our secular world in one sense is... I read a philosopher recently who described our secular world as haunted. That there is a something in people's hearts that longs for something higher, something beyond them. That perhaps the secular lifestyle that people have enjoyed has come up short, that doesn't fulfill them, that doesn't really meet their needs anymore. You see it in how we long for political leaders who will somehow a power beyond us who are going to come and fix everything. There's a longing in people's hearts, a desire for something more. But what we want is, whether it's a God or a higher power, we want it to be something that we can control. 
We want a kind of a, a Photoshop Jesus, one that we can create, a God in our image, a God that will do what we want it to do, when we want it to do. We want a higher power, something beyond us, but we want it to be subject to us. We want to be able to control it. We want it to, for it to meet our needs when we need it to, when we want it to. This is for us as Christians, if you're a believer in Jesus here, we often do the same. We, the way we treat Jesus is uh, we, we either add things onto Jesus that we'd like him to be like, or we take away things that he says even in this book that we disagree with because we want Jesus how we want him to be. We don't necessarily want the God of the Bible. We want the God that's best going to reflect our values and our ideals, our philosophies, our ways of thinking that's going to help us achieve our goals, that's going to help us give success to the kingdom that you're trying to build rather than the kingdom that he's called you into. Which you may think, how does any of that relate to this story? Well, the accusation that comes against Stephen when he's called before them in verse 14 of chapter 6, they say to him, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. They're talking about the temple, their center of worship. That's the first accusation that he was seeking to bring some kind of destruction to their temple worship and that he'll change the customs that what they're afraid of with Stephen and what Stephen represents this new church that's formed that they're going to destroy their place of worship and they're going to change the practice of their faith they're essentially accusing him of what I've been talking about that he they're saying Stephen just wants to create his own God he wants to get rid of our faith and just build a new faith. He doesn't want to believe what we believe for centuries and centuries and centuries. He just wants to start his own thing. He wants to reorder, distort our whole belief system. He just wants God plus whatever he feels like. And yet Stephen's response, which maybe this afternoon you want to sit down and read the bit that I didn't get to read today... What Stephen does is he tells this story of how he goes and... First of all, it seems like he's just giving us a, a history lesson. I remember when I was a child going to, around to my granddad's house who fought in the Second World War, and every now and again he'd say, during the war, and then this, this story would come out, which was both... I think now I'd find it fascinating, but when you're eight years old, it's pretty boring, to be honest, because most of the stories weren't that interesting. Anyway, but it can sound a bit like Stephen's just doing that. Well, during the history line, and he gives us this kind of, what seems at first glance, just a bit of a boring uh, account of the Old Testament. But what he's doing is he's saying, he's kind of cherry-picking all these stories from the Bible and showing again and again how the people of God the people that have put him on trial, that they've rejected God again and again. That actually they're the ones who have distorted this belief system. That they're the ones that have been trying to create their own God. And he puts it quite explicitly in verse 40 of chapter 7. Or I'll read from verse 39. It says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but talking about Moses, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt and they said to Aaron, make us 
Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, rejoicing in the work of their hands. The people of God that he'd led out on this amazing Exodus story out of Egypt, they rebel against Moses, they rebel against God, and they make a golden calf. They make, a, they make their own God. The God of the Bible wasn't enough for them. He didn't meet their needs, so they just made their own. God, you're not doing what we wanted you to do, so we'll just make our own one. This one will be better. This one will suit our needs. That's what Stephen, that's how he responds to them. He says, well, this, what you're accusing me of, of remaking our belief system, he said, you've been doing that for hundreds of years. And that's because there's this impulse in the human heart to do exactly that, that we do the same all the time. We try and remake God in our image, what we'd like him to be. And there's a few clues in this passage of what Stephen tells us the real Jesus is like, which can help us, help us today. First of all, he says that we can see from this story how God is active. There are 16 different times where he uses the, the phrase in this story, theos, of, he talks about God again and again and again. See, because often we try and remake God, we reject God, we try and create our own forms of worship, our own belief systems, our own higher powers. We do that because we think that God is inactive, that we think that God has stopped working. You might have thought this in your own heart from time to time, of God, where are you? Why aren't you in this situation? Why aren't you solving this problem for me? It might be something that you've prayed again and again and again, a burden that's been on your heart, a challenge you're facing, and you just prayed it again and again and again, and you feel like all you hear is just silence. You say, God, what are you doing? Why isn't this changing? Why aren't you doing what you said you were going to do? And that's what's happened to the people of God. That's why they made their own golden calf, because to them, God seemed inactive. He was just God on pause, God on mute. And yet what Stephen does is he shows through this story again and again how God appears, how God speaks, how God gives, how God promises, how God sends, how God sees us, how God is with us, how God rescues us, how God redeems us. This is all language taken from this passage that Stephen focuses on. How again and again we've tried to reject and recreate and remake God and yet all the time he's been there. There's a story which I enjoy in, in Habakkuk, which um, if you enjoy grumbling, then Habakkuk's, Habakkuk's the guy to go to because he loves complaining. And the book starts with Habakkuk's complaint. He says, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Again, it sounds like a prayer that I'm sure maybe you either prayed or thought. How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? And he goes on for a few more verses, grumbling. 
And then, wonderfully, in this book in Habakkuk, God replies, he answers. And his reply is this, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And that was true then, was true in the days of the Israelites when they were coming out of Egypt. And it's true in this story as Stephen is speaking to these men who are accusing him and it's true today that God's at work. It's often in hidden ways, often ways we might not expect, often in ways that we might not think he should be working because he's God and we're not, because he knows what's best for us, that he sees the bigger picture, that he's working in our lives again and again and again. That God is always active. He's always active towards us. Secondly, we can see here that God, he's not limited to a place. He's not limited to a place. Because this is what these people are fearful of, that they've built their entire worship, their whole belief system, their whole culture effectively is focused on the temple in Jerusalem, the place of worship, the place where God dwells. And anyone that comes and says God's anywhere else, anyone that doesn't worship in the temple or in one of their synagogues, anyone that isn't doing it here is, is wrong. That's their accusation against Stephen. But what he does in this story is he tries to show them how actually God's never been limited to the temple. He says in chapter two of verse seven that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, which is what we would know as modern day Iraq, not in Jerusalem in a temple, just out in the desert. He appeared, appeared to Abraham there. Of how when uh, Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt, it says in verse nine, but God was with him even in a prison, in a dungeon somewhere in Egypt, that God was with him. He's not limited to a place. In the story of Moses, which again Stephen tells, how a, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a burning bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. That again, God isn't limited to a certain place and then he says in the verse that we read earlier, the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. It's his message to them here. He does not dwell in houses made by hands. See, what Stephen's doing is he's quoting even what Jesus said about himself. That Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. Because he was talking about himself that he's now the dwelling place of God, that we don't need a temple in Jerusalem anymore, that Jesus is where we find God, and Jesus isn't limited to a place or a certain space, but he's here this morning with us right now, with his people. And just as they'd limited God to a place, to a temple, to where they wanted him to be, we also limit God to where we'd like him to be. Perhaps for you, your Christian faith is just an hour or so here on a Sunday morning. And you don't 
doesn't really affect the rest of your life. You've limited God to here, to this place, and you don't really want to, you don't really want God to be in your workplace. You don't really want God to affect the decisions that you make about money or your time or your family. We limit God. We say, no, you can be in this place here at this time when I choose, but you, you can't come to me to these other places of my life. You can't have your say in my relationships or my parenting or my marriage or my family life. You can't have your say on what I do with my career of what I pursue, the goals that I have. They're, they're mine. They don't belong to you, Jesus. That's not the place where you get to be. But that's not the kind of relationship that Jesus wants to have with us. He doesn't want to be set in a box, put on a shelf, put on a mantelpiece by our front door just to give some positive energy to our home. That's not how Jesus functions. He wants to be in every place of our life. He's not limited by place. Also, he's not limited by our actions. We see again and again that Stephen tells this story of how the people of God rejected him, who they were jealous of Joseph, so they sold him into Egypt as a slave, that they didn't understand Moses, so they rejected him. They disobeyed him. And then he comes to this quite harsh rebuke where he calls them stiff-necked people, always resisting the Holy Spirit. And he says to them, it was actually where they've accused him of wanting to come and destroy the temple. He says, no, that, you did that. He says, you were the one who killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. The, the dwelling place of the living God, Jesus Christ, you destroyed him. The, the customs that they were afraid that Stephen was going to come and change, Stephen says to them, no, you who received the law is delivered by angels and did not keep it. But they're the ones that have refused to follow the customs of their faith, the practice of their faith. They're the ones that have ignored it. They're the ones that have sinned and disobeyed God again and again and again. But yet the story of this passage is that God isn't limited by their disobedience. That God's purposes he will fulfill he does fulfill, he has fulfilled in this story. That even though they didn't keep the law, they didn't keep the covenant that God had made with them, that this story tells that God appears to Abraham and gives him this covenant of his grace for his people, that you will be my people. And yet again and again, they chose not to be God's people. They didn't keep his covenant, but all through the story, God has always kept his covenant promises, his love and faithfulness towards his people. See, his, it's not just that God isn't limited by our actions, but his grace toward us is not limited by us. That how he loves you this morning isn't limited by how you've performed. It just isn't. That his love for you is dependent upon the love of 
God the Father for his son, which for eternity is the strongest love that the universe has ever known. And as a follower of Jesus, that's the relationship that you're called and welcomed into. And that isn't limited anymore by your performance, by your obedience. Again and again, we read in this story of how the people of God reject him again and again and again. And yet God keeps coming to them. Even when they build their own golden calf, even when they say, we don't want to worship you anymore, we want to worship this instead. What what an offense to God that they would do that. That they would just, out of some gold and some mess, build, build a statue and say that that's more powerful than the living God. What an offense to God, and yet he keeps loving them. And he keeps loving us when we build our own counterfeit gods. Even when we manipulate what we think Jesus should be like to fit our ideal of what we'd like God to be like, he keeps coming to us. His love keeps pursuing us. And what Stephen shows us in this story, even in how his death takes place, he calls us to to look to Jesus Stephen acts even in himself, not just in what he says and his speech that we've been talking about, but even in how he acts through this whole thing. Stephen acts as a kind of a living signpost to, to Jesus. It says at the start of the story that Stephen, full of grace and power, just like Jesus was, was doing great wonders and signs among the people, just like Jesus did. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit of which he was speaking, just like the Pharisees couldn't withstand how Jesus spoke to them. So they raised up false witnesses to bring accusations against Stephen, just as they did to Jesus. And they had him murdered, just as they murdered Jesus. Even at his, even at Stephen's death, it says they cast him out of the city, just as Jesus was taken out of the city to Golgotha. That he cries out with a loud voice and says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It's the same language from Luke 23 of how Jesus cried out with a loud voice, God, receive my spirit. And then Stephen prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The same way that Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. You see what? Stephen is doing is he's even in how his life here is in a sense a mirror of Jesus' life his suffering a mirror of Jesus' suffering there's a message to us here that to be a Christian it's not about adding Jesus into your life it's not about some kind of spiritual additive some kind of health kind of kind of you know lesson that you take a kind of a manual that you read, some advice that you receive. We don't add Jesus into our life, but we're invited to join. We're added into him. We're saved into his life. That the church, the people of God, as to live as Stephen lives, to live out the life of Christ, to live as he lived. He sent his Holy Spirit to live within us. Stephen could do all of this because he was full of the Spirit. And that's what he's called us to live like as believers in him. Full of him, enabling us 
to live as living signposts to Jesus ourselves. And Stephen literally does that. He says he was full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed into, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Even Stephen's prayer at the end it summarizes this whole message. It summarizes how this temple, this dwelling place that these religious authorities are so revered, how that's, it's gone now. That Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. That Jesus is the one who receives his prayer. That he comes and prays to Jesus. The same way that the temple was this place of worship and of prayer to go to. That Jesus is the one who gives access to God's presence. He comes, he looks to Jesus and he sees the glory of God. That Jesus is the one who grants forgiveness. That the whole of the temple was built around this sacrificial system to somehow gain forgiveness for the people of God. And yet Stephen just comes to Jesus and says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That he knows where to come for forgiveness. It's not through uh, a lamb, a sacrifice at the altar in Jerusalem because the lamb has already been sacrificed for us. That Jesus grants forgiveness to his people. Let's stand together and I'm going to pray for us and we're going to share communion together. Jesus, we want to we want to come to the real Jesus today. Um, we're all, we all know how in lots of different ways we, we, we try and distort you and your message. But we can often just try and put you in our place. That Jesus, you can function here in this part of my life, but not over here. Of how we reject you because we think that you're just inactive and... We want a God that will meet our needs when we want and how we want. And yet, God, we want to we live like Stephen. We want to live with that radical faith. We want to look to you, Jesus. And the, what makes a difference in Stephen is your power, your spirit at work in his life. God, and we want to we invite you now, Holy Spirit, just to come and fill us just to come and equip us to follow you no matter what. We want to come this morning, just receive your grace that isn't limited by our actions, that comes to grant forgiveness to us this morning. Just all the ways that we've rejected you, where we've, even this week, we've not trusted you, we've trusted other things instead. We try to build other higher powers to serve our needs. We just ask for your forgiveness. We just come to you and receive your grace again. In Jesus' name, amen.